1: Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. This is Intelligence Matters with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morrell. Brought to you by Lockheed Martin. Your mission
2: is ours. So disinformation is one of those things that's a little hard to define, but you know it when you see it, right? It's a type of incorrect or wrong information or falsehood That exists on a continuum or a spectrum. It has to have an intention to create some injury, some desire to confuse, denigrate, dissemble. It's not a trivial prank, but it has to be something more substantive. It certainly has an element of intent to do some wrongdoing.
0: What's the argument for disinformation, even domestic disinformation, being a national security threat?
2: disinformation whether it's foreign or domestic uh, is a national security threat very simply because it does one of two things it either sows discord in our society or it undermines confidence in our democratic institution whether that's governmental institutions the press or, or other important societal structures and that's why it's a national security threat what makes it effective is that disinformation falls on receptive eyes and ears with people not believing about uh, the efficacy of a vaccine or whether whether they should trust scientists to wear face masks, etc. So it's having a, a real effect on our economy and uh, disinformation, as that is, and uh, and our public health. Um, so that's a that there, there's no question it affects our national well-being.
0: Glenn Gerstel was the general counsel at the National Security Agency from 2015 to 2020, one of the most senior legal positions in the intelligence community. Before serving at NSA, Glenn was in private law practice. As part of his responsibilities at NSA, Glenn had to deal with the legal issues that arose from the information attack on our democracy by our foreign adversaries. Glenn has just written a terrific article for The New Yorker on disinformation and what we can do about it, and he is joining me today to talk about it. We'll be right back with that discussion after a word from our exclusive sponsor. I'm Michael Morrell, and this is... Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about, all from the comfort of your home, isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Back to Intelligence Matters. It is great to have you on the show a second time.
2: Thank you. Really looking forward to it.
0: I'm going to remind folks, Glenn, that the first time we had you on the show, we focused on your career and what it really means to be the senior most attorney at the National Security Agency. And I'll tell you that it was one of our most listened to shows And I would encourage any listeners who haven't listened to it yet to go to our archives and find it and take some time with it, because I think it is a very interesting look at what it's like to be the general counsel of one of our nation's leading intelligence agencies. I also want to remind our listeners that this episode, part of a series that we're doing, between the election and the inauguration on key national security issues that are facing our country. And today we're going to talk about disinformation as a national security threat. And our conversation is going to center around a really terrific article that you, Glenn, just published in The New Yorker that was titled The National Security Case for Fixing Social Media. And if folks actually want to read the article, they can Google your name and the title of it, or they can just Google your name and the New Yorker, or they can actually go to your own website, glengristell.com, and they can find it there. So if you're interested in what you hear here, you can go read more in the New Yorker. But before we get to the article, Glenn, I want to ask you two really important questions about the intelligence community, and I really wish we had an entire hour to discuss each of these, but unfortunately we don't. The first is a compare and contrast kind of question, right? The kind of assignment you were given in fifth grade. And you were, the reason I want to ask you this is you were one of the few senior officials in the intelligence community to serve in both the Obama and the Trump administrations. And I'd love for you to compare and contrast what it was like to
2: serve in one versus the other. Thanks, Michael. And thanks again for having me uh, on here on your important podcast. Well, no surprise, there was, of course, a big difference uh, between the Obama and Trump administrations, at, at least from my perspective, and surely obviously from other perspectives as well. Um, and I wish, as you said, we had an hour to discuss it all, but uh, but I'll try to summarize it. Maybe I'll, I'll summarize it and say there were sort of three different areas that struck me. To start off, let me just describe a actually a, a piece of equipment that uh, maybe to illustrate the first one. Uh, when I work, walked into my office the very first day at the National Security Agency, um, one of the assistants uh, pointed out uh, a, a fancy computer video to me with some fancy speakers and microphones. And I, I said, what's that? And the assistant said, oh, that's the special secure classified uh, video conference equipment for conversations with the White House Situation Room and the Pentagon and the State Department and elsewhere within the intelligence community, and the assistant said, "And you'll probably be using that fairly frequently, and I, you know, a couple times a week, perhaps." And sure enough, I did. Uh, we had video conferences with lawyers and policy officials throughout the uh, last year and a half of the of the Obama administration that I was uh, served under debating and considering virtually every national security issue, uh, both from a legal point of view and a policy point of view. Uh, all these issues were were thoroughly discussed and vetted. Um, and then the surprise was that when President Trump came into office, and I'm not making a political statement, just a, a factual statement, the number of times I used that video conference was just a handful over a course of three years, literally a handful Three and, wow. and a half years. And it's wow. not because I was cut out of things. It's because the discussions weren't even occurring at that level. And, you know, change uh, and the style of an organization starts at the top. Uh, so, President Obama was himself a lawyer, indeed, a constitutional law professor. Uh, he was someone, as you, Michael, know, who was very engaged in, uh, in an avid consumer of intelligence and very engaged in the receiving the presidential daily brief and asking follow-up questions about it. And that tone sort of starts from the top and flows down. So no surprise that during the Obama right. administration, uh, there was a extensive discussions of, of all public policy issues associated with the national security sector. You could argue it was too much that maybe things got nibbled to death and overlawyered. Mm-hmm. And I certainly saw evidence of that, uh, but things were very, very considered. And in the Trump administration, uh, that simply wasn't the same the same case uh, I think a lot of decisions were made by a very small group of people very close to the president probably a little more on instinct than on the basis of detailed analysis uh, in the interagency organization and uh, as I said it just it, re- it reflects a different different approach from the top so probably the second big change was uh, just a recognition of the uh, turmoil and I would say maybe a little bit probably not an exaggeration, some of the chaos uh, over the last um, three or four years under, under President Trump attributable to major personnel changes. So we had during that period of time, uh, I believe, four acting or confirmed directors of the Office of the Director of National Intelligence. I think we had an equal or greater number of secretaries of defense during that period, unprecedented. The National Security Agency, where I worked, was reports to both the Secretary of Defense and the Director of National Intelligence. And uh, add to that mix uh, an impeachment in which the intelligence community was sort of caught between the executive branch on one hand and the demands of Congress on another, claims of illegal surveillance by the president, an intelligence, uh, an inspector general's report criticizing the FBI for certain surveillance procedures, intelligence. Um, an inspector general from the intelligence community who sparked the impeachment inquiry and who was himself uh, fired by the president, a contentious renewal of the most important national security statute during that period, Section 702 of FISA. And all of this, as I said, occurred in sort of an unprecedented way in 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 just a handful of years. And it may not have had an effect on day-to-day operations, but it certainly had an effect and impeded our ability to do long-range Policy planning, strategy development, that requires sustained leadership from the top. And that just wasn't present with all that turmoil. So, the last difference in some ways negates the first two that I told you about, which is the difference in style starting at the top and the the sort of the turmoil of the last four years. And that is that substantively, the work of the intelligence community continued throughout this period professionally uh, without a break in operations. Our adversaries hasn't, had, didn't change during that period of time. So there was no doubt about what the challenges were. And our allies didn't change during that period of time. They continued to work with us. And I think this is really a testament to the professional men and women of the intelligence community that notwithstanding the turmoil that I described and notwithstanding the differences in the tone and style at the top, uh, nonetheless, the intelligence community continued to do what it needed to do to keep our country safe during that period. So you don't
0: think the quality changed in any way in terms of the execution of the mission of the intelligence community?
2: Not in a day-to-day sense. I I think, as I said, I do feel we lost ground or failed to make up ground on longer-term strategic and policy issues to prepare for the future, and we can talk more about that. But to answer your question, no, I don't think so. Okay.
0: All right. And then my second kind of question, Glenn, is what advice would you give to President-elect Biden about what the intelligence community needs at this point in its history?
2: President-elect Biden and his team are certainly very experienced and probably don't need advice from me. Uh, Not even sure they'll take it even if I offered it, but they certainly fully appreciate what needs to be done with the intelligence community. There's a lot of things that are obvious to all. The intelligence community has, in some respects, been hollowed out uh, with a loss of some senior talent, uh, particularly at ODNI, the Office of the Director of National Intelligence and some other agencies where both political and career people have have changed. And it's been a little battered, right? It took a little bit of a beating from uh, from the press, from from the president, from some other quarters. And um, so there, there there's some a little bit of morale issues. And the president-elect knows he needs to address those right away. He will appoint good people. He will appoint experienced people. And I imagine he would probably make some gesture early on in his administration to restore the confidence of the American public in the intelligence community. And I'm not sure what he'll do in that regard, but I know he'll recognize that he needs a confidence building gesture. What I would say to the president-elect beyond that is that I think there are some deeper structural issues that probably have been papered over for the last oh decade or so, while we were diverted rather successfully, but diverted in the counterintelligence mission, and the result is maybe to use a maybe an overworked analogy is that we're the intelligence community is a is a in a vehicle that's driving uh, seventy miles an hour. It's really fast. It's really doing a terrific job, but there is a car in front of us that's doing eighty or ninety, and the gap is increasing. And by the car, I am mm-hmm. not referring to any one country, but an environment. And and the environment is developing faster than the rate at which our intelligence community is innovating and adapting. We're we're at a a point of divergence between our very good and increasing capabilities of the intelligence community, And, and they are very substantial. I don't want to minimize them at all. But it's set up against a world that's growing at a faster rate in a more dangerous way, a more complex way. Technological change and political changes are outpacing our ability. So, as you and I have discussed in other contexts, I think we need a broader definition of national security. We need to focus more on open source. We need to deal with a multipolar world. And basically, I would tell the president elect we need to confront the reality that we have a 70 year old intelligence architecture that is little changed from post war years. We've bolted on Capabilities to deal with technology change, cybersecurity, counterterrorism, et cetera, and, and very successfully. But everybody agrees that if we started with a blank sheet of paper today and said, "What are the threats to our national well-being today, and how should we structure ourselves? How should we best position ourselves to respond?" We we wouldn't come up with the structure we have. So the question, Mr. President-elect, is if we're not going to overturn this because it's we're not talking about a wholesale change that's unrealistic. The question is how do we affect the change given limited resources and the time pressure? That's the issue. So this is actually a great
0: transition because I think disinformation and how you think about that as a national security issue, Glenn, fits into exactly what you just said. So when you think about disinformation, how do you define it? And are you looking at it just from the perspective of disinformation from our adversaries, or are you looking at it from domestic
2: sources of disinformation as well? So disinformation is one of those things that's a little hard to define, but you know it when you see it, right? It's a type of incorrect or wrong information or falsehood that exists on a continuum or a spectrum. At one end, disinformation is something that is both false and has an element of deliberate, intentional desire to spread a falsehood. Or if it isn't actually a knowing and intentional one, it's certainly a reckless disregard for the for the truth or veracity or lack of veracity of it. In some ways, disinformation is a little me- easier, Michael, to define what it's not. I mean, it's not it's not just misinformation. It's not just a plain error or something wrong, and it's also mm-hmm. not. Exaggeration or disingenuous statements, or puffing or misleading—something like you might see in a in a political campaign where one candidate um, mischaracterizes in a misleading way uh, his or her opponent's voting record, or something like that. It has to have an intention to create some injury, some desire to confuse, denigrate, dissemble. It's not a trivial prank. So it, it could be, you know, a prank could be a knowing ro- wronghood, but it has to be something more substantive. So I, I think, as I said, you know it when you see it, easier to define it maybe mm-hmm. when it's not, but it certainly has an element of intent to do some wrongdoing. And gotcha. As to your question of uh, foreign or domestic, it's both. Um, both are dangerous. They're different and yet similar. The domestic, I think. We have a sense that it's more likely to be accurate, more more accurate, uh, more likely to be believed because the domestic people sort of have a sense of what, the, what, what our hot buttons are. Uh, the foreign is probably uh, maybe one step removed in that regard, but it also could be more concerted. A big, a big country, a foreign nation state could have a serious campaign, an integrated campaign that might in its own way be every bit as devastating as, as domestic information.
0: So Glenn, you break your article really into two sections, I think. One is an argument for why disinformation is a national security threat. And then the second section is what are those things that we can actually do about it? So I want to take each of those in turn, if that's okay. What's the argument for disinformation, even domestic disinformation, being a national security threat?
2: Disinformation, whether it's foreign or domestic, uh, is a national security threat very simply because it does one of two things. It either sows discord in our society or it undermines confidence in our democratic institution, whether that's governmental institutions, the press, or, or other important societal structures. And that's why it's a national security threat. What makes it effective is that disinformation falls on receptive eyes and ears. Uh, in order to believe some falsehood, you sort of have to be predisposed to it. And uh, if you or I hear something that doesn't square with our knowledge, we our first instinct, our natural human instinct is to say, oh, that's probably not true. That doesn't make sense. That doesn't sound like him or her. I'd never heard him or her do that. On the other hand, if it's something that fits in with our preconceived notion we're all too ready to believe it and indeed in this case uh, as i talk about in the article uh, go ahead and forward it on as a tweet or a facebook post or whatever because it sounds right to us disinformation doesn't create these societal divisions and these prejudices and predispositions they already exist but it but it deepens them and hardens them and that's why it's a particular national security threat i might add that it it really does affect our national well-being you know we think when we think of our national security, we think of, oh, missiles and submarine attacks, et cetera. And yes, those, those are things we need to concern ourselves with, and we spend a lot of money on them, with people not believing about uh, the efficacy of a vaccine or whether whether they should trust scientists to wear face masks, et cetera. So it's having a, a real effect on our economy and uh, disinformation, as that is, and, uh, and our public health. Um, so that's a, that there, there's no question it affects our national well-being, has the potential to do that.
0: We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor, then we'll be right back with more of a discussion with Glenn Gerstel.
1: Man, that sunset is gorgeous.
0: Grill, patio, sunset, hard to get better than that, unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in.
1: Oh, burger time.
0: So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you.
1: I could stay here forever.
0: Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Okay, so Glenn, talk to us about what progress we've made so far on this and why haven't we made more?
2: I, I don't think we've made that much progress, sadly. Uh it's sort of sadly fascinating that um we're aware of the problem. We're all cognizant of disinformation on the left or right or whatever. We're frightened by it, anxious about it. You know, we're not doing very much about it. We're talking about it. That's I guess a first step, so that's a good sign, but we're not doing it. And I think there's several reasons we're not taking action, mostly because there's no one obvious solution, there's no magic cure. It's a little bit, speaking of cure, to use the analogy, it's a little bit like treating a disease where the doctor says, uh, well, we could do some surgery, but there's a lot of risks to that. Or there are several drugs you could take, but each of them have really serious side effects. Your first reaction is, well, gosh, I don't want to do any of those. Well, obviously, that doing nothing is not an acceptable alternative either. And we're sort of at that stage right now, which is we're, we're evaluating what we can do, partly because this is new, it's complex, we like the anonymity that comes with being online. That's a feature that we, we like in some ways. We don't really want to hurt these tech companies and their platforms. We, we like Facebook and Instagram and YouTube, et cetera, so we don't want to get rid of them or really curtail them so that they become uninteresting and not fun and boring. There are lots of legal problems with regulating speech. It sounds a little authoritarian to rule out certain kind of communications. We don't want to look like Russia or China. Uh, It's a little hard to see the actual injury. There's no one person being hurt. And then finally, government's hands, the the, the entity that you'd expect to do something about this, namely government through regulation or laws, their hands are somewhat tied because in the domestic area, we don't want to tinker with free speech. And on the foreign side, uh, we're not too sure who's creating the disinformation given the difficulties of attribution. So government can't do much. And it then ends up in the hands of the private sector, which, as I said, we have trouble getting things uh, done in that regard.
0: Glenn, how much of, of, I mean, we've been talking about this you know, for four years, right? I mean, this really started in 2016 to grab everybody's attention. So how much of it is that the issue itself has
2: become politicized? Oh, very significant. Uh, I, I don't think we can rule out the fact that disinformation, that just the way to treat disinformation has become politicized. Obviously, the substance of disinformation is is political so that I mean, whether it comes from the right or left and by the way there's there's very significant disinformation coming from both sides i might add it the more virulent kind seems to come from the right which tends to dwell in the more lurid conspiracy theories and more outlandish claims and there are some academic studies that that indicate why the right might be more prone to this kind of disinformation because of a feeling of aggrievement or, or disenfranchisement. But, but suffice it to say, it has become political when the president himself is one of the sources of disinformation, that has a great effect. There's a couple of academic studies that say that, that it isn't really fair to blame social media for disinformation. They certainly help uh, carry it, transmit it, and amplify it, But the most effective disinformation comes from authority figures, elites who are believed, whether it's the president or figures uh, in in leading an industry or or academia or elsewhere. Um, If they start with something that's incorrect, it's amplified by social media and it it becomes a political issue.
0: Yeah. Technology is a big piece of this too, right? I mean, you, you actually write in your piece that we've entered a world in which our national well-being depends not just on the government, but also on Facebook and the other companies through which we lead our digital lives. So this is, a, this is kind of a unique situation. You know, when, when we talk about counterterrorism, the government can take care of the whole thing, but this is fundamentally
2: different. Absolutely, Michael. You, that's, a, that's a really ter- terrific and important point, which is um, we certainly under the constitution expect our government to provide for the common defense. That's not a duty of the private sector. And yet- Simply due to technology, we now have changed that equation. Uh, as as technology makes us adopt more and more cyber generated platform, software, utility, it leads to vulnerability, and that in turn leads to responsibility. What do I mean by that? Well, you know, in its heyday, General Motors uh, had there been a mishap at General Motors or a defect or a shutdown or whatever, it probably would not have affected our national well being. But today. Imagine the chaos and the national and the effect on our national well-being and thus our national security if Google went down for two, three days, or Visa or MasterCard stopped. This would have a major, major effect on our country. So all of a sudden now the private sector, including because it has masses of data about our, our private sector lives, we're now at a situation where the private sector, uh, is vulnerable and therefore it has some responsibility for our national well-being too. And that's a very significant change that we haven't had, had, the, had before in our country's history.
0: And to what extent do you think the private sector understands what you and I are talking about here?
2: They clearly understand it, uh, but they are slow to develop solutions to address it. So I think intellectually they understand that as they, as for example, in the area of data, the private sector clearly is acquiring lots more data take take an example there was a few years ago there was a big hack against marriott where passport and personal details of i think several hundred million people were were stolen out of marriott the hotels database marriott uh, not to pick on them but just using them as an example they they're certainly cognizant of the fact that they have some duty of, of stewardship of trust to to safeguard this data and they and they took some actions in this case it wasn't wasn't sufficient. Someone was able to hack into it. But I think most responsible private sector companies understand that with this adoption comes vulnerability and that they have a duty to to protect it. But at what level and and uh, and how much money are they going to spend on it? And what, what are the rules and what are the standards by which we're going to apply that level of responsibility? That's where our society hasn't come together. We're still very, very unclear as to exactly how much duty we want to impose on On and what liability and what responsibility we want to impose on the private sector. And that's what we're going to have to worry about over the next decade.
0: So one of the, Glenn, one of the things I I absolutely loved about your article is you talked about the problem, but then you actually provided some very specific recommendations for how we can deal with it. And I want to talk about those. But before we get to that, one of the things you say in your article is that there's more we can do than we currently think. Walk us through
2: what you mean by that. Sure, Michael. And that in some way, that the point you're making is in some ways why I, why I wrote the article, because there certainly are lots and lots of articles about disinformation, many of which are better than mine. But what I wanted to do was to say something that not really described the problem, but say that we actually have some tools to deal with it. And I think the key to this is the fact that disinformation has many components. It's not, it, it isn't sourced by f- because of one factor or one reason or comes from one particular source or another. So the fact that it has so many components that enable it, that, that foment it, that amplify it, facilitate it, means that there's no one magic bullet to cure it. So that's the bad news. Um, but on the other hand, it equally means that we have possibly have lots of tools to attack the problem. Maybe no one of them is going to solve it, but we've got lots of individual ways of getting at the problem. So sort of like maybe terrorism or now the pandemic, there's no one single solution, no one magic drug, but we do have some maneuvering room in the law, in technology, and in the political areas. And we don't need to be paralyzed by some of the concerns I talked about earlier. We we can take some actions. All of these that we can take and we can explore what they might be uh, will have an effect some will work, some won't. We can calibrate this. We have to have some trial and error. We'll make some improvements. And I think the key for us over the next several years as we go down this road is to not be dogmatic about it, to be flexible and try, in effect, as to use this analogy, some different drugs and treatments and see which ones work.
0: So Glenn, you put your recommendations into
2: three buckets.
0: And I just want to throw each bucket out there and get you to talk about some of the
2: specifics, if I could. So the first, your first bucket is is what you call legal, right? And that's maybe I start with that just because I am a lawyer, so that's where I gravitate to. But but obviously that's a, that's a a big part of this. I mean, we can't just outlaw disinformation, right? I mean, you under our constitution, First Amendment, you've got you have a right to receive false speech, uh, even even from outside the United States. But having said that, so you that, have a right. So you have a right to receive, not just say. To both say and receive, say and receive. Yes, you're correct. Right. And so interesting. So we interesting. can't we can't just outlaw it flat out because of the First Amendment and the way it's been interpreted over the years by the by the Supreme Court. So having said that, I also want to be very quick to say that the First Amendment is not absolute. People think of it, oh, you just can't have any law outlawing free speech. Well, we've got tons of exceptions where we do impinge on free speech rights. Um, and it's beyond the classic one that you learn in grade school that you can't yell fire in a crowded theater. But you know, we've got laws uh, prohibiting the filing of false police reports. We've got laws prohibiting making false drug claims, advertising for cigarettes in certain contexts, et cetera, et cetera. So there's lots of places where our society and, th- and the Supreme Court has decided that it is appropriate to curb some kind of speech. But this is a very, very fraught area. We don't want to Look like China. We don't want to take authoritarian statements, uh, author- authoritarian steps. I think there are some narrow things that we could probably flat out make illegal, perhaps, and our, some constitutional law professors will have to debate this. But maybe we could make the intentional dissemination of fraudulent news about say election processes uh, illegal. So you couldn't, for example, um, send out a tweet saying that polling places had changed from location A to location B if you knew that that was wrong and you intended to Mm. deceive, just as an example. Mm. I think you'd have to have a pretty high standard, right? Not just an accident. So maybe there are some things we could do that. It's not going to cure the problem, but it's a step. The First Amendment doesn't apply to the private sector, so we've got some more freedom there in terms of dealing with social media. We'll, we should spend a quick second on Section Two Thirty of the Communications Decency Act, and there are probably other some legal steps we could take. So we could, for example, maybe maybe make it illegal to micro-target ads and content on the basis of race or other inappropriate categories, so that your feed doesn't necessarily reflect uh, in Facebook or YouTube doesn't necessarily reflect something improper. Um, to go back to what I alluded to before. Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, we could spend a long time on. I'll just simply summarize it. I'll simply summarize it it by saying that it's a statute that was enacted at the dawn of the internet age age in 1996 and basically says that if you're an internet uh, operator or provider, you're not liable for the content on it. Um, And you're also not liable for taking down content. So just pick YouTube, for example. YouTube isn't responsible if someone puts up a bad video, you can't sue YouTube. And if they decide to take it down, you can't sue them for taking it down. I'm greatly oversimplifying something. And that made sense in 96 when, uh, when we wanted to encourage the growth of the internet and we didn't want them hobbled by litigation and lawsuits. But now it certainly doesn't Make sense to have these these social media platforms that have tremendous sway over our public lives and public opinion, and have them be utterly unaccountable. So again, um, something that is an, an, an anachronism that uh, that we need to need to fix. And there, as I said, there are ways that we could go about amending Section Two Thirty. I'm not in favor of repealing it, but ways we could tinker with it uh, to to balance the competing interests.
0: And is that different? Is 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 social media handled different than traditional media in that regard?
2: It is. And it, again, it grows out of this disparity that the internet grew up after we already had uh, well-established laws for broadcast journalism and print, et cetera. Um, so it a, occupies a separate category. And in a way, they are not subject to a lot of the rules that print media are subject. Just take one one quick example. If you run a political advertisement on radio or TV, it has to conform to certain rules. The candidate at the end has to say, as we all know, I'm so and so and I approve of this ad. You run that exact same ad on Facebook or YouTube, not required. And what how does that make sense? Because, you know, these they're so blurred right, right now.
0: Right. So Glenn, second category, second bucket. That, that you had in your article, you titled technology. Talk about that a bit.
2: So technology, there are lots and lots of ideas here. Uh, we don't, we're not going to tick through all of them, but the, let me just simply say that there, the technology which which both creates this problem can also help solve the problem in three areas. One, we can do some things structurally. We can, we can make posts and tweets that contain disinformation less viral. We can label them. Uh, we can remove inauthentic accounts. Uh, we can disclose algorithms that provide our the feed, including some the feed of potentially mis or recommendations of, of some mis- misleading information so those are all structural things to be fair. Social media in the last year has greatly expanded its its use of technology in this regard and is probably uh, we could argue that it should have done it four or five and six years ago but but they're now moving along uh, to use technology to to help address the problem, not solve it but address it content policing uh, we can use artificial intelligence to catch the bad guys the people spewing disinformation and labeling it um, and we could have better communication we could um, the intelligence community could share more information about foreign disinformation social media itself could share more information consistent with antitrust rules among itself so there's there's a lot we can do with technology and we're starting that process but still more to do
0: and then you have an other bucket yeah the
2: other bucket is uh, doesn't fit into. Which I love. I love the title of the other bucket. <laughs> well, <laughs> it's uh, there are many steps we can take that don't fall under the heading of, of regulation or technology, and they're just a whole series of policy choices. And uh, we could maybe come up with a better name for it, but they range from such things as having stronger international treaties to pr- that would make it. It would make each country agree that they will not export disinformation, or at least maybe certain kinds of disinformation. They won't interfere with someone else's election. Uh, We could have international agreements that would help bring to justice uh, perpetrators, uh, uh, hackers, and other uh, people who spread deliberate misinformation. We could Undertake more cyber offensive actions against Russia, China, North Korea, Iran that, uh, that are spreading disinformation uh, from, from abroad. We're already doing that in large respects. We could perhaps do more. We could have an integrated disinformation center within the federal government. You know, there's no one in the federal government who's responsible for countering disinformation. Uh, the Justice Department, the FBI, the NSA, Uh, the State Department, its Global Engagement Center, the Federal Communications Commission, they all have a role in dealing with digital communications, but there's no one responsible. And yet, by contrast, we do have an integrated counterterrorism center, for example, in the intelligence community. And maybe we should do that, uh, have, have some coherent approach to disinformation.
0: Since we're talking about both foreign and domestic, right, Maybe the intelligence community isn't the right place for it. Where would you Where
2: would you put it? One might start just as a uh, starting place with the, the Department of Homeland Security. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Seems like a uh, I, th- I think you'd probably not want it in the Department of Defense or the intelligence community for, for obvious reasons. You could arguably also see it in the Justice Department. Uh, that to me seems a very legalistic approach. I'd, I'd probably vote for either an independent place in the White House. Uh, and, and have it be coordinated out of the White House with a, some senior level appointment there or, or the Homeland Security. Again, something our society needs to consider. The final piece, just very quickly, is, uh, is civic education. And I'm a big proponent of civic education to counter disinformation. 20% of our states have no requirement whatsoever that in elementary school or high school you learn anything about how government works. Uh, yeah, only sure. nine yeah. states in the District of Columbia have have even a one year requirement. And when you don't know how government works, and you think, and you don't know what the purpose of checks and balances are, then it's easier to think that you know all the politicians are crooks, or that it's okay to ignore judicial rulings, or it doesn't make a difference what the three branches of government are.
0: All right, Glenn, you have been absolutely terrific with your time. I just want to ask you one more question here. Let's just assume for a second that President-elect Biden. Read your New Yorker article, and he gave you a call to tell you how great it was. What's the one or two or three, whatever you want to say? what What would you want to say to him in such a conversation about this problem and what we need to do?
2: Well, after making sure that it wasn't a spoof phone call, uh, <laughs> I, I would, uh, I would, I would tell the president elect that I'm honored and flattered to be in a position to talk to him about what is really an extraordinary problem. He I would say that you know, sir, that you're facing two extraordinary problems that are arguably the greatest national crisis we've faced since World War II, the the, the pandemic and and the economic effects of it. But in some ways, I would say, Mr. President-elect, to exaggerate just a little to make the point, disinformation, or maybe more accurately, the consequences of it, is actually just as big a problem as those first two. Why? Because unless we start addressing disinformation we're not going to be able to fix the first two problems. People Mm -hmm. won't take vaccines if they believe disinformation. They won't wear masks. Mm -hmm. They won't practice social Mm -hmm. distancing. Half the country thinks the incoming president uh, wasn't even properly elected, perhaps. Um, And we're not going to make progress if our citizens don't have some basic level of trust in our government to to solve those problems. Um, Just because the disinformation is is diffuse, it's difficult. There's no one day that it has to be fixed, but it doesn't mean it shouldn't be addressed as a matter of national urgency. And I would say, Mr. President-elect, that taking some concerted steps to counter disinformation will, in fact, powerfully help our national well-being.
0: Glenn, thank you so much for joining us. Fascinating discussion. Again, people can find your article in the New Yorker. And it's a great read and people should actually take a look at it because I agree with you that this is an extraordinarily important issue. Thank you for taking the time to spend with us.
2: Michael, thank you. Very much appreciated the chance to talk about this topic.
0: That was Glenn Gristel. I'm Michael Morell. Please join us next week for another episode of Intelligence Matters.
1: Intelligence Matters is sponsored by Lockheed Martin your mission is ours. This show is produced by Olivia Gassis, Jamie Benson, Jake Rosen, Paulina Smolinski, and Ariana Freeman. For more from this week's show, visit cbsnews.com. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS Audio.